0: Hi, I'm Katherine. And I'm Gail, and we are pleased to present Eileen Joyce Donovan, who is 73 and was born in New York City, and like a true New Yorker, spent most of her life there. She also found time to live in six other states and visit most of the other 50. In one way or another, Eileen has been writing her entire life, whether it was imaginative stories for friends or advertising copy for industrial clients. She never though felt her stories were good enough to be published. With support from her late husband, she persevered. Years later, this persistence paid off and her award-winning debut historical fiction, Promises, was released in 2019. Her newest book, A Lady Newspaperman's Dilemma, was released this week. It has already won the Nationwide When Words Count competition. Eileen is also a contributing essayist to various themed anthologies, including Chicken Soup for the Soul, and is already at work on her new book with several other ideas for books rolling about in her head. So Eileen, welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined.
1: Thank you very much, Gail. I appreciate the invitation. So you told me you began teaching
0: writing in colleges and then spent a year researching historical fiction. So I'm really curious to understand how someone begins to think about writing as a career. And and can you tell us how you got to where you are today?
1: Well, uh, actually, I started writing while I was teaching in colleges. And my first attempts were to recreate some Victorian fairy tales that I had come across that I had never heard before, and I, I was a big fairy tale fan, still am. And, and these were ones I had never heard of, so they intrigued me. But I realized that they would not appeal to a, an audience today because of the lengthy sentences, uh, the, um, the, the lengthy descriptions, kind of written in a Dickensian style, if you will. And kids today aren't going to read that kind of style. So I was mentioning this to my husband and telling him how delightful these fairy tales were. And, and I'm talking about these fairy tales went on for pages and pages, 50, 60 pages long, <laughs> a, a very small print, no illustrations. Um, and this was just text and, and uh, how, you know, they should be reimagined and recreated for today's audience. And he said, well, why don't you do it? Mm-hmm. So I, Decided I would give it a shot, and um, that's what got me started. I got contracts for three of them, but unfortunately, they never went all the way to publication. The mm-hmm. printer was not able to; uh, the publisher was not able to bring them all the way to publication. And uh, but I but I realized that if I had gotten contracts for them, maybe I could write something else. So I started writing more fairy tales on my own, and then someone told me that my voice in the fairy tales was too adult for children. And I thought, hmm, so maybe that's not the genre I should be looking at. (laughs) Meanwhile, of course, I had been reading and reading and reading. And I realized that 99% of what I was reading was historical fiction. Mm. So I thought, maybe I should look at something historical. At the same time, I watched a documentary on PBS about children who beginning in the 1800s were being shipped to the col- British children were being shipped to the colonies, the British colonies all around the world. And these were indigenous. Uh, in, in, what am I trying to say here? Um, these were children who were poverty-stricken children or orphans who would roam the streets of London and have nowhere to go. Mm. So uh, it started out with religious organizations saying, we have to do something about this, and they they started to just call them gutter trash. Mm. And oh. so they said we have to get this gutter trash off the streets because it's disgusting, and they're disgusting, and uh, no one wants to look at these children. So they just started indiscriminately gathering them up and shipping them off to colonies. Mm. Well, and and where what have were their parents around, or
0: were they? Some of
1: them had parents; some of them did not. But like I said, the the ones who did have parents, they came from extremely poor families. And if the kid didn't come home at night, it was kind of, well, I guess he found someplace else to sleep, or I guess he he mm. wandered off some. And they didn't much worry about them. Or if they did, the authorities paid no attention because these were homeless people. These were uh, people in abject poverty. So the, the police... Kind of brush off anything that they worried about and just said, Well, the kid ran off. What can I tell you? That kind uh, of deal. Yeah. Then, when when World War two started, the government got onto this program and they said, Hey, if you people want to protect your children from the Blitz, this is an excellent way to do it instead of just sending kids to the country because. There's only so many people in the country we can send them to, and we all know about the children who were shipped to these states in the, the country. Uh, and uh, you've got you know different countrysides of, of England. They said we can send them to places like Canada and Australia and South Africa, and it'll be a real adventure for these kids. Just think of what they can see and what they can learn. And, and if they go to Canada, they can see the Rockies and. The mounted police are there and they can meet real Indians and, oh, it's just going to be such a wonderful adventure. And the war is going to be over in a couple of months anyway, and then they'll come home and they'll have this wonderful summer. So they talked parents into this and parents readily signed up their kids. They lined up outside government offices to to sign their kids up and the kids were sent by the droves and they were treated abominably. And a lot of them died. A lot of them were just either physically or emotionally, mentally maimed for life. And um, and I saw this documentary. This went on until I think it was the the 1960s. They finally stopped this program. <laughs> so another uh, documentary. Do you know? Uh, it was called "Lost Children of the Empire." Mm. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and that was another thing. A lot of them just lost contact with parents. They didn't know if their parents were killed in the blitz. They didn't know if the parents had been relocated because their buildings had been bombed mm-hmm. and they they were never reunited. So they had nothing to go home to. So when the war ended, a lot of these kids wound up just staying where they were because they had no other place to go. They didn't know where to go, mm-hmm. which was another disaster. Um in fact, there's a woman, Eleanor McGrath, from Canada. She did a documentary on this as well, about the same time my book came out, and i've I've been in touch with her off and on. and um and she interviewed a lot of the um, they were called home children. She interviewed a lot of the home children who still live in Canada. and by now they're grandparents and um, and talked to them about what their life was like. and some of the things they described, it just it, it just breaks your heart. So this so, influenced your your writing of Promises. It did. That's what brought about Promises. I I thought about that documentary for years mm-hmm. until I finally said, I've got to write this story. People don't know that people all everyone knows about the children who were sent to these country estates during the war, and wasn't that wonderful? And no one knows about these children who were shipped off the 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 British Isles into all of these other strange places Mm. so um after after three years of this pounding in my brain i finally said why don't i just sit down and write it and then i started doing some real heavy research on the topic and um it was hard to find books on this because most of them had gone out of print if uh, you know if they were printed at all i had to go into parliamentary records and and all Mm. kinds of nonsense to get some information and news, old newspaper reports and all of that. Um, but I finally did manage to gather together enough research where I felt like I had the basis of a book, and then I started to write Promises.
0: <laughs> and, and
1: so what is Promises about exactly? Promises is the story of a brother and sister who are shipped from their home in, um, in Liverpool, and they are shipped to Nova Scotia, and they are put with this fishing family with, well, fishing couple, they have no children and they are treated abominably. And, um, and it's their time in, in uh, a little town called Peggy's Cove, which is a real town. They, the children were not shipped there. There were children shipped to Nova Scotia, but not to Peggy's Cove, but Peggy's Cove is a town I'm very familiar with. So I use Peggy's Cove (laughs) and um, it's, so it's their time on the ship. And it's their time. Then, in um, a home in Halifax, before a family came and chose them to go live with them, and then their time with this family. Mm. Were, the, were the
0: families paid to take in these the, children? The families
1: were paid. They were supposed to be monitored by the government, but they were not. There was there were not enough monitors, enough government monitors to do an adequate job. Mm -hmm. So um, and a lot of times when a monitor did get to the house, the children were interviewed with the 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 family, the the mother or the father, the husband or the wife of the family standing right there. And -hmm. the monitor would say, well, how are they treating you? And of course, the child would say, oh, very well, thank you, sir, because otherwise they would be beaten.
0: Yeah.
1: Or they would be deprived of food. Or some other punishment. So of course they were going to say, "I've been treated very well, and I'm very happy here, and I, I'm so thankful for these people." So it was—it was just a horror show. Mm. So the, your newest book, "A Lady
0: Newspaperman's Dilemma," was just released, right?
1: It was released um, on Tuesday. Yes. Uh huh.
0: Uh-huh. Tell us about that one.
1: So that one is based on another historical incident, which actually took place in 1940. And it was the only time, it was and is the only time when the United States Army actually bombed a United States city. Mm. And when I first read that, I was like, well, how many people know this? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would bet not too many. I'm sure the army is not populating this little story and saying, wow, look at us, we bombed a city. Mm. So um, I thought, this is interesting, and this is something that would make a really interesting book. Mm -hmm. So I started again. Like with all historical fiction, you do tons and tons and tons of research before you ever put word to paper. And I started looking into it, and I found there were snippets that you would find snippets from newspapers snippets from or better, better from newspapers than from the stars and stripes. Let's say the stars and stripes did an article on one of the crew members of the plane, but it was, look, what a wonderful job we did here. Look at, look at how we saved this town from destruction. So mm-hmm. it was, it was with that you know, pat yourself on the back type of reporting. And um, I I don't think there were any books written about the incident. I'm trying to remember now, but I'm pretty sure there were no books written about the actual incident. But I read a lot of books about that time period and what it was like living here in the United States during that time period. And so I wrote the entire book in 1940, set in 1940, and then um, I showed it to a friend of mine who happens to be an agent. She's not my agent. I don't have an agent yet, but um, she read it and she said, you know, the market is, is being inundated with books about World War II. And even though your book is not about World War II, it takes place in that time period. and." I think you would do yourself a service if you moved it to a different time period. Mm -hmm. So I thought about that and I thought, okay, so this is a woman. and, And what I did was I thought, how can I, how can I tell a story? And I thought, well, okay, how does news get out? How did news get out in, in, in 1940 newspapers, radio, a little bit of TV, but in this very, very rural community in Montana, I would doubt there were too many TVs, so they would rely on newspapers and radio. And I thought, okay, so who do you need to run a newspaper? You need reporters. If I make it a woman reporter, that makes it a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, oh, well, in the nineteen forties, there might have been quite a few women reporters because a lot of men were off at war. Mm-hmm. I thought that if I put it in the twenties, then there were very very few women reporters and everybody was was scrambling to try to get a play any woman was really had to scramble to get a place on a newspaper because the men treated them like yeah yeah you can do a society page but don't bother me with real reporting kind of deal yeah so so i said well no i'll i'll make it in the 20s So by now I had written the whole story. I had written the whole manuscript. So then basically scrapping the whole manuscript and starting from scratch all over again, doing all new research on the 1920s, Mm -hmm. reading books about the 20s, uh, fashions of the 20s, all kinds of, there was a great book called Born Yesterday, which was written by a person who lived in the 20s and it was written in 1931, I believe, and that book was fascinating because that was a person who was alive and telling the story almost right at the time about what the twenties were really like. Mm. Mm-hmm. Aside from what we all think of with the gangsters and running around with, with, um, you know, submachine guns and shooting rival gangs down that kind of deal. So this was um, a real hands-on study of this is, this is life. hmm Which I found the book fascinating, and it's a very slim book, but uh, it had a wealth of information. And I realized that at that time, what we would consider a a, a, my everyday, let's say, run of the mill that sounds awful, but a run of the mill murder, which might catch headlines for, oh, well, today, a half a second, you know, five (laughs) seconds. spot on the on the nightly news or something and then everyone goes on to something else and people forget about it the next day but um during that time period during the 20s a story of a murder could stay on the front page of a newspaper for days for weeks depending Mm -hmm. upon the length of a trial depending upon the severity of the murder the type of murder so i thought okay so this is something that could eat up headline for a long time this is something Mm. that would capture people's attention and would not just be relevant to the people who live in the town so uh, i i took the whole manuscript i had from the 1940s and i said okay so this basically gets garbaged and we start all (laughs) over again which is what i did and i wrote it situated in the 1940s i changed the name of the town um, but I kept it in the same vicinity because I had to in order to make the story work. And, and then in my notes at the end of the, the book, I do talk about the actual town, which was bombed by the, the by the army. Mm. And, um, and I made the reporter a young woman reporter, whose goal is to work for a major metropolitan paper, but she knows she has to start somewhere. She's a cocky college graduate. She, this is her first job. Um, she gets thrust into this role of lead reporter because her mentor, um, another woman reporter, because at that time also a lot of the men in that town were lost in World War One, So there weren't many people around to work on a newspaper. So the editor was forced to, to employ some women. And the men he had employed were men who were uh gathering news from the ranchers and uh, the cattle breeders and the horse breeders in the area, and they were much more familiar with that life and the women were kind of let's say stuck in town doing the the little local news mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Eileen may I, yeah. I, i've I've really I've been, always been interested in this notion
0: of historical fiction and the way you're describing your your dogged pursuit of Information and the in-depth research that you've that you've done for your books, t- talk a little bit about what keeps you going um, to to do that kind of digging around. It's almost like an archaeologist
1: well, you if you start out with an idea that has captured your imagination, that has captured your interest, it has uh, that kind of eats away at you a little bit, then, as you start to, to, to dig, it becomes even more interesting. Mm. So you just keep digging and you keep saying, there's got to be something more or, oh, I wonder what this part, I, I wonder, and sometimes you, you, you go down a rabbit hole so far that you forget that, oh, wait a minute, what I was looking for was at the very beginning <laughs> of this rabbit hole and now I'm three miles in. <laughs> so um, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff you dig up that gets tossed. But mm-hmm. um, it, it's just, it's a process that you, you just keep finding things that are interesting about the period or about the area or uh, about the actual incident, and it it sparks your interest again. So every mm-hmm. time you think, okay, I've got it all done, you come across some little thing <laughs> and you go, oh, I didn't look that up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's great it's it's really a labor of love isn't it
1: It actually so. is very much so yeah you you have to you have to love your topic and you have to be fascinated by it sure. to, in order to really do a good job with it
0: Well we'll be curious to read a lady's news a lady's newspaper man's dilemma <laughs> and where is it available
1: uh, It's available at Amazon Barnes and noble all over the place, um, okay. from the publisher, Woodhall Press. Mm-hmm. And how um, I many things? Yeah, that's great. I wanted to ask you also, um,
0: how, how do you hone your craft? I, I know you belong to many writing groups. And and do you have to be invited to these groups like Authors Guild, Women's National Book Association, and the Historical Novel Society? Do you have to be invited to them? Uh, when you do, you learn to work. Uh, you learn to hone your craft while you're in them. What tell us a little bit about it? I think it's fascinating about writing groups.
1: Well, each one has its own. Well, let's say requirements for membership. When I joined Authors Guild, mm-hmm. you had to be published in order to get a membership in Authors Guild. Now they allow unpublished writers to, to join. I, I forget what level they call it. But um, when I joined, you had to already have a book published in order to join. And, and they hold webinars, classes um, about craft. Which you can attend or not as you wish, but um, it's all—it's a matter of every every newsletter teaches you something because there's always a little teaching part of their newsletters. Mm -hmm. The Historical Novel Society—you don't have to be a writer to join that; you can just be someone interested in historical novels. Mm -hmm. But again, that's a situation where uh, that that the. (laughs) well the the president of our new york city chapter calls it the mothership is in england Mm. and so they have branches here in the united states and and fortunately we have a new york city branch a chapter and in the new york city chapter we offer uh we have monthly meetings and some of those are author showcases like last night i was showcased Mm -hmm. and i got to get up and talk about my book and do a a small reading, an excerpt from the book. And then I think it's it's either next month or the following month will be a meeting on craft. And there'll be someone there who will talk to us about one particular aspect of writing. Mm -hmm. And We have our own critique groups. Uh, that you can or cannot join. Of course, everything is at your own discretion, what you feel will be helpful to you. And it's it's a society where you can get together with other writers. And of course, you're trading ideas all the time. And you're talking about what you do with the historical novel society, especially what you do when you're researching how you're researching, where you're finding information, where's Mm -hmm. a good place to go to find information all of that. So it all contributes to your ability to, to, um, to find what you need to write a good story.
0: Mm -hmm. So if you're serious about writing as you are, then you really do need to associate yourself with either writing groups or associations or critique groups, right?
1: I think so. Yes, absolutely. It it helps you, especially with critique groups. It really helps you hone your craft because those are writers and they're being very honest with you. And they're telling you where you may have not hit the mark well, where mm-hmm. you may have hit the mark well, uh, where where your story is falling apart, uh, with, where you are just filling in pages with lots of info and for no reason. Other than just to dump info on the reader. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, so they're extremely helpful. Yes.:
0: Uh-huh.
1: And, and the Women's National Book Association what's that? The Women's National Book Association is a, a little bit different because you do not have to be a writer to join at all. We basically that is basically a situation where we are talking about books,
0: mm-hmm. rather
1: than the, the craft of writing. So, um, there's a group, there's a, um, uh, what would I call it? Um, yeah, I guess a faction within the, the WNBA that's called great group reads. And I was a uh, part of that segment for a number of years. And I, last year I said, I couldn't participate because I had too much, too many other things going on, but publishers will send the people who are readers in the great group reads about, let's say 30 books between January and June, that you as a participant, you agree to read and to write a quick review, maybe two paragraphs Mm. um, uh, on that book. And then at the end of the period, sometime June, July, you are asked to pick the 10 that you felt were the best so your group might have three or four people and there they, you know there could be 10 groups there mm-hmm. could be five groups it all depends and you get all these arcs and you're reading constantly i mean this is this is speed reading <laughs> 201 not 101 right. and and you're constantly reading and you're constantly writing these little quick reviews and uh, so you pick the 10 best and then they all go into a pool and the, the, higher ups in the group decide which are the 10 they are going to recommend to the entire organization. Mm. And those are usually the books that are chosen for, um, the book club that we have book, Wom- book woman, mm. um, and those are the books that are touted as being the best of the upcoming books because these are all upcoming books. These are we're getting arcs to read, so these are all books that are going to be published probably within the next year.
0: Ah, uh huh. It's it's always fascinating to learn about how people learn about the cra- their crafts, their cra- you know what they're what they're interested in and involved in. But, yeah, and
1: that's that's amazing because you get to read all of these books that are up and coming. And you see what are the trends and how are people writing? Yeah. Uh, you know, which is something, and you, you're always reading outside your genre because these books are not necessarily in the genre you're writing. Sure, sure. So it, so it exposes you to a lot of things you wouldn't normally pick up in a bookstore.
0: Yeah, right, right. So uh, time goes very quickly. And I, I'd like to ask you before we end, how do you think about writing in terms of your age, if if at all? Do you?
1: I don't. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, writing is just writing to me, and it you can you can write as long as you can breathe. I think so. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't. My age doesn't affect me at all. And a lot of my writer friends are the same or older than I am, and uh, we're all just totally invested and enthused about our writing and. We get excited when we talk about it.
0: Sure, sure. And and do you want to just share maybe what uh, some of these new projects that are rolling around in your head for your next book? Sure,
1: I have. I actually recently received a contract for my next book, which is about three sisters mm-hmm. in New York called the Campbell Sisters, and that'll be out in March mm. of twenty twenty three. And um, it's a story of their young adulthood, let's say, Mm -hmm. their um, one sister, the eldest, just wants to she just wants to get married and have a family Mm there. There you know, she's graduated from high school. She wanted no part of college. She wants to get married and have a family. The middle sister wants to be adored by everyone in New York. She's absolutely gorgeous. And she feels that that's her due to be treated like a queen by every male in New York City. (laughs) Showered with all of the best. And the youngest one wants to be a doctor, Mm -hmm. which in the 1950s was still kind of a tough road to hoe for uh, a woman. Mm -hmm. So she's got her own problems and her own uh, uphill battle there. So that will be their story. (laughs) And then I'm doing research on women prospectors in the late 1800s out West. Mm.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to be interested in following you, Eileen. I have a feeling that you're going to be very prolific in in the next 10 years or so. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I thought you might, I thought, uh, Eileen, that you might have um, turned to older, having the main characters be older women. Is that a
1: possibility? Um, I don't know. The, the women prospectors that I'm researching, they uh, those women are a bit older. They're more middle-aged, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they obviously, they well, I shouldn't say obviously, but they didn't start prospecting when they were 20. They came to it. After a series of other things, the one in particular who I'm focusing on right now, she was uh, she owned restaurants and hotels and then she moved into Alaska mm-hmm. and she started doing this prospecting. And I, I'm also focusing on a woman who uh, became a newspaper publisher just because there was no newspaper publisher around. She wanted to put out a newspaper so, and she went to that when her children were grown. And, and so she was quite a bit older. And um, and I'm, I'm trying to hook them up, and then hook them up again with a doctor who is quite a bit older, and how they all got together to join the suffrage movement.
0: Oh, mm-hmm. fascinating!
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's a matter, of, you know, you have to research all these different elements, and then you have mm-hmm. to try to figure out how do I how do I meld them mm-hmm. into a cohesive unit. So it's going to take a little bit of time for me to figure all that out. Look forward to those. Yes. Thank you.
0: Well, we appreciate your being on Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined, Eileen. And we wish you continued good luck with the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. You're very welcome.